0: Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Inside Social Work podcast. I'm your host, Marie Carcas and in today's episode, I'll be chatting with Helen Gray about burnout. She shares some of her own personal stories and how she's developed an entire program dedicated to reducing burnout for social workers and other allied health professionals. There'll be some links in the show notes to her website and some of the details for her upcoming course. I hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget if you find it interesting please click subscribe and leave us a rating or a review. They're really important for me to help work out what's working to get your feedback and to make improvements to the show. So don't forget to rate the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Thank you. In today's episode I interview Helen Gray. Originally from the UK, Helen studied social policy and politics at the University of Newcastle, Upton Tyne, and has a Masters of Social Work from the Queen's University in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Helen's career has mainly been in the family and childcare arena, including statutory child protection in the heart of Belfast, where she worked with Youth at Risk of Homelessness in Northern Ireland and in Sydney. She moved into a managerial role. In an NGO in a family support and risk prevention program with families that had an ROSH reports made. In 2015, Helen experienced psychological breakdown as a result of burnout and the impact of vicarious trauma and left her practicing social work career in mid-2016. Helen now has an emerging startup business with the focus on supporting practicing social workers to gain awareness, knowledge, and skills to reduce the impact of vicarious trauma and burnout on their health and profession. Helen has a growing interest in the role moral resiliency, moral distress, and moral residue play in a social worker's career and well-being. Helen is launching a pilot of a specialised program, Because You Care, SOS, which stands for Save Our Social Work. The program, launched in August, provides online training and support to enable social workers to explore their well-being and the impact of their work. So, without further ado, I welcome Helen, where we talk about preventing burnout. Welcome, Helen. Hi thank you very much for having me here. Thanks very much for joining us. This is such an interesting topic. Um and in a lot of the episodes so far we've talked about burnout and looking after ourselves. So this is a really perfect um a perfect topic I guess to get people familiar with some of these words what they mean and what they can do um to prevent burnout later on in their career.
1: Absolutely. And it's great to be able to be out here and talking about it and and getting the word out, I think, to both students, new new graduates and those who are further along in their career as well. Wonderful. So could you share with the audience some of your social work journey? We had a little bit
0: there in the bio, um, but what are some of the things that have led you to where you are now?
1: Okay, so look, I guess I go back to the beginning. I'm a daughter of two teachers. Um, My father was a head teacher, my mum was a home economics teacher, and I grew up with the belief that the work you do is a vocation. Um, I also grew up with the idea of a career for life and a very strong sense of um, social responsibility. I knew I didn't want to become a teacher, but for a long time I didn't know what I wanted to do. But that idea that um, my work was meant to be serving others and giving back to society was was sown in from a very early age so um as you said i I initially i i you know kept my options really broad i did um social policy politics and psychology when i first started but ironically i dropped my psychology um in the first year i just found the brain too too complex and confusing which now when you know that is a, a key part of of my interest and my passion so i find that you know that's quite amusing but look, in terms of how I got into social work, I, um, I was heavily influenced by my early experiences. In Northern Ireland, I got involved as a student, as a university student, in a youth cross community community relations program. Um, and that eventually drew me to moving to Northern Ireland in probably back in about 1994. Um, and it was a great place to be doing the hard work, doing the grassroots community relations, community work. And after a while, I you know, I did a couple of those usual stints. I worked in a youth refuge, I worked in um, homeless accommodations, and I got some work in um, an accommodation service called a foyer, which was a new, a new model being set up in Northern Ireland, and it was supporting youth at risk um, as long as they were engaged in, engaging in education and training. And that was really what decided me on the fact that I needed to go and get my professional social work qualifications. So I went back to do a master's of social work and did my training. And when I came out, popped out the other end of that qualification, all ready to face the world, as they say, And I started working in statutory child protection in the heart of Belfast. So that really was a baptism of fire into social work. I mean, you know, we all know the experience of people coming out as new graduates and and taking those jobs in, you know, child protection in FACTS or in social services as it was over there. And you either sink or swim. You know, I was exposed very quickly to um, the dark humour of social work, which has always been something that, you know, keeps us going as a profession. But I also um, was... Just, you know, caught up with the with the doing. I rapidly did some post-qualifications. And after about three, three and a half years, I was at a point where I was just like, I'm not sure what I want to do here. Um, and so I decided to take a career break. Um, a bit of a luxury, but my social workers were in need in Northern Ireland. So they gave me a year off and I went traveling and I ended up in Australia. And unfortunately for them, that's where I've stayed. And in Australia, really, I have again, found myself working in that child and family arena. I've done a lot of work with um, youth at risk, youth at risk of homelessness. Um, and I started work with a, a youth foundation, which became very important in my my identity and my professional career. Um, and whilst funding decisions meant that, you know, the, the accommodation model, which was similar to that that I started in, in Northern Ireland years ago, the foyer model, whilst that... Um, closed down due to funding issues. I stayed involved in the Youth Foundation for a long time. I became a director on the board and a working director with that Youth Foundation until eventually we closed that foundation back in 2012. And after that, I returned back, I guess, to my roots of working in family support, the edge of child protection. Um, I took a, it was a managerial role that I thought was going to be quite an innovative program, working outside the realms of statutory um, social work. And in the end, I guess it resulted in me being drawn very much back into that statutory child protection field. So I worked there with a team for a number of years, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But that's where I actually then came to the end of my professional career in um, 2015, when I experienced my um, episode of burnout.
0: That's an incredible story and such a wide range of experience. I can see um, why you would say baptism of fire for those who've worked in those industries. It is huge. It and is. You, and you I get think it's thrown in the deep end as a graduate. Often graduates take those roles, um, which is, you know, I guess our one of our, our main audiences here at the podcast. And it's it's overwhelming, it's exciting, there's a lot of change, there's political change, there's government change, there's funding cuts, there's high risk young people that you work with or uh, children and families, and it's it's just everything happening all at once.
1: And that's right. And I think you know we were so excited that we you know were doing the real work after our study, um, that we do we do just immerse ourselves in it. And I know for me it was a couple of years of completely you know having my eyes opened and my my you know my mind blown by by the experiences that I had to deal with on a day to day basis, um, but Northern Ireland itself was a very traumatized society due to its you know long history of of troubles and sectarianism. That you know working there was really was um, quite pivotal in terms of I think my later experiences because of the influences that I guess I didn't realise at the time, but how they how I'd internalised them and how they'd impacted me. Yeah, that's that's um,
0: it's a hard thing to to understand. So I guess what, rewinding a little bit for those who are kind of new to the field, and um, we you hear we hear burnout thrown around a lot.
1: But what does it actually mean? What is burnout? Look, I think that burnout. Is a really popular phrase at the moment, and um, especially the World Health Organization. You know, this year recently reclassified it um, as an occupational phenom- phenomenon, um, and I think that's reignited the focus of, of what it means and how it impacts individuals in their working lives. You know, when I was going through my experience of burnout, I guess I didn't know what it was, um, and I think that is really important to understand because um, a lot of us don't know that we are experiencing some of the signs and symptoms of burnout we don't understand what it is that we're experiencing and I think often we we think that it's it's to do with us it's a an individual deficit and I think that that's it's really important that that is um that that's you know not the case and it's and it's seen as something which is actually, you know, the impact of our work is the work that we do as social workers is is undeniably going to have an impact on us. There's no question about that. I think it's the challenge is making sure that we manage that impact and we're supported to manage that impact. And one of the things that I've become very clear on is that um, doing the work we love should not make us ill. It's, you know, it's as simple as that. So, look, burnout, burnout is, you know, it's been conceptualized as a syndrome that is resulting from chronic workplace stress that's not been successfully managed. And I think it's easy, again, with that with that phrase to start associating um, blame. You know, is that, oh, it's not been successfully managed by me as the individual, it's my fault. Or in the other way, it's not been successfully managed by the organization, it's all their fault. And I think we need to be careful not to, we need to try and neutralize the idea of, um, you know, where the the challenges have come and not be trying to, you know, proportion blame, but really look at how collectively we can work to prevent um, the outcomes of burnout. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned it's a collection of um,
0: symptoms. What are some of the symptoms? So some of the things that come to mind uh, look very similar to almost a combination of anxiety and depression. So you have um, that kind of worry and that feeling in your, maybe in your chest or in your body There can be low mood or irritability, um, really affecting your productivity. And, and like you said, often it can seep into your personal life or at home. So you're not quite sure what it is. You just
1: That's right. And I think, you know, that idea that, you know, burnout is not a medical condition. So we don't get diagnosed. When I had my breakdown, I didn't get diagnosed with burnout. I got diagnosed with a major depressive disorder as a result of my situation. You know, code name for burnout. Um, But it can. It can have those impacts um, across the gamut. And I think when we start seeing it in our work, it's almost when it's getting to be too late, um, so you know that idea of you know like you talk about increasing irritability and being that a building sense of you know anger or resentment or frustration with things that are happening around you I remember um in the run-up my daughter who was I think was seven at the time she she said to a friend of mine she said "Mummy can't do click and collect at Woolworths because she gets too upset with the workers when they get the order wrong and I was like wow and I didn't I didn't think anything of it, but when I reflected back, you know, in the time afterwards and looked back at how my stress and anxiety and the situation at work was impacting my personal life, it was little things like that. So it's things like either, you know, withdrawing or, or, you know, separating yourself, distancing yourself from some of your personal relationships. It is things like that sense of um, exhaustion an energy energy depletion so you know the world health organization says that that's one of the key key criteria is that exhaustion and energy depletion and i think that that's something that can start to you know start to play out you might stop doing some of the things that you've normally done for your self-care and wellness and you just you know you end up just trying to get through the day and they also talk about it being you know that sense of distancing yourself from your job or having that negativity and that criticism, cynicism about your work. And I think that that comes, different people internalise that in different ways. So, you know, I internalised it inwards that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing the job. I wasn't able to do what was needed to be done. You know, other people might, you know, project that outwards to to the systems or the society. Um, But also, again, that sense of, that reduced sense of personal um, efficacy, you know, that idea that you just aren't able to do the things that you believed you should do. And I think we're social workers because we are in many ways a very ethic-driven, you know, we, we have our philosophies, we have our beliefs and our, you know, a, a, about what we should be doing, what we're trying to create, this, you know, this sense of, of greater good. And um, those things can start to play really, really deeply on the inner psyche, that idea that you're no longer... Um, effective in what you're doing. So, yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, the symptoms of burnout, you know, it might be, you know, they, they, they mirror those, or, you know, they all blend into one with those of, you know, compassion fatigue, you know, not being able to sleep, you know, that restlessness, all of those aspects, you know, it might be that you're overeating or you're undereating. You might be compensating in other ways, you know, the odd glass of wine becomes a couple of glasses of wine. We're trying to do our sort of like our numbing and our coping strategies. So there's a lot of ways that that impacts on the personal and the professional. I found it interesting when you said you internalise it. I can see how it can go almost in a
0: couple of different ways of like yourself where you just said, it's me, I'm not doing a good enough job, um, I'm not competent enough or I've missed something. Or to the other extreme where it's like, it's you know, it's their fault, it's the clients. it's the organisation and you just kind of, you show up, you're very kind of disassociated and disconnected and then, you know, you find your tasks quite mind-numbing and repetitive or... Underwhelming or overwhelming, so it kind yep. of it can flip, and it's really interesting when it's you want and to to your baseline of what's where's, where's your normal, and deviations from that is kind of a bit of an indication maybe something's not quite right.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people who use that as a coping mechanism, um, and that sense of, well, I'll just do enough, I'll just go through the motions, I'll, I just have to keep keep doing, you know, just just enough to, to get me through. And that can actually be, you know, a very clear sign that people are suffering. And um, because it's that, it's that, you know, it's that coping motion. It's almost giving up, being resigned to the fact that, you know, you're not gonna be able to do the grand things that you you envisioned you once could and just, you know, and just like you say, stepping through the motions. And then many other people actually, you know, and it's very common factor that many other, you know, especially in our profession social workers, increase the workload. So the idea that actually, well, you know, we need to keep doing more. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take time off. I'm going to work longer hours. I'm not going to take my holiday. And so those things are both indicators. That, you know, there might be somebody taking too much leave or more than the average leave. And um, it may be an indicator that something is wrong, but also those workers who just, you know, refuse to take leave and keep charging on and are doing more than the hours. You know, that may be a case of, you know, that they're actually trying to fight those demons inside that, that you know, they need to, to be able to do this job better. Yeah, so it sounds like we
0: can break it up into. We've talked about some of like the physical signs. So that's your changes in appetite. You mentioned sleep, feeling tired and lethargic are quite common things there. Um, and then that sort of emotional sign of feeling. I think you mentioned that self doubt and failure, maybe a
1: helplessness and defeated defeat a little bit. Yeah, and I think that idea of of a loss of a loss of hope, um, a loss of belief in the. The effectiveness or the potential effectiveness of the work that you do, um, an increased sense of of risk and anxiety about the work, either about you know are you going to be able to keep this work? Are you going to be able to keep doing the work? Or you know the the you know the, the risks and the and the, the the challenges in the work are just ever mounting, and and the, there seems to be no answer. And um, so again, I think there's no one. <laughs> we, we as social workers we should be used to that but there is no one set you know way that this this plays out for people everybody's journey is very individual and I think that's where we you know we do need to be able to take that time to look inwards at at our own needs and see see how that impacts us.
0: So what would be so some of the signs that you would notice in yourself or colleagues so you mentioned maybe taking more breaks than usual so it could be Um, I know when there's an increase in sick leave, that tends to be a bit of a red flag if it's kind of over a prolonged period of time. Um, You know, my mind goes to kind of coming in late and leaving early and that kind of disengagement from work. But you also mentioned around maybe overworking or extended hours. So it it could be that taking on more work or is it that perhaps the tasks are taking longer because you're procrastinating or you're just not as engaged?
1: And I think it's a combination of both. I think it's that that idea that you're trying to, you know, you might find that there's workers who just think, I just need to keep doing more. You know, so if I if I show up more, if I just do one more, you know, if I just do one more visit, if I just do, you know, if I just get those case notes, right, if I just if I try to show up more, they're trying to compensate for what they they see is a lack in their their professional ability, um, but then, like you say, there may also be that you know as you as you become more overwhelmed, then you know just that simple cognitive process of of thinking through your tasks and and being able to you know clearly assess well what was my visit and what am I going to write into my notes or what is it that I need to do to create this report. Those processes become more challenging because we are second guessing and we're you know we're we're in that state of of, you know hyper arousal which I think is you know often the case is that people get to a point of such high agitation or hyper arousal that you know everything is on high alert and the body cannot function in that way for a prolonged length of time and I think that's one of the things about burnout it's not actually about one-off critical incidents it is about that that chronic prolonged exposure to multiple stresses in the workplace and so it might not be about your clients you know it might be a combination of you know your the mix of your caseload your your support you know the the lack of resources in the community the you know the challenges of of a you know of a team dynamic it's it's these multiple workplace stresses that that you know, it's like comorbidity. They're, they're all they're all there together, and that repeated exposure and that lack of appropriate support to be able to to psychologically and and practically respond to these stresses takes its toll. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I think it's
0: yeah. So one of the, I mean, I've kind of conceptualised stress and burnout as being slightly different. So for me, in my mind, and I'd love to hear your views on this. Stress is kind of like there's a lot happening and there's a lot lot to do but sometimes often when it's that deadline or that project or whatever it is you're working on once that's done the stress kind of dissipates a little bit but I kind of see burnout as being more just devoid of motivation mentally exhausted like it's like you're drowning in responsibilities is more of a stress thing but burnout is just like there's nothing left to give
1: yep I think um you know stress is good for us we know that, you know, those, those points of, of stress, appropriate stress is good for our body. It's good for our system. You know, we develop that, those coping capacities. But what is important is that we have that capacity to come down from that. Um, I think the, the perception of burnout that it means that you, you lose that motivation whilst you're there um, and becoming demotivated was not my personal experience. But as I say, everybody's experiences are very different. Mine hit me like a brick wall. I literally felt the experience of breaking. I remember it vividly. It was um, the 9th of November. It was a, I had a team meeting that I had to um, run for my team. And I had to deliver more organizational decisions that I was challenged, struggled with myself. And on the way down to work, it was early morning. I I'd, I'd thought, I'm going to just get a treat for the team. And I'd called into the shop. And the only place that was open was like a Kmart or somewhere. And all I could find was a tin of biscuits. And I'm like, that'll do. I'll take that down with me. And we delivered this meeting. And at some point in the meeting, one of my a very trusted, very dear colleague made a comment about the wafers being stale. And I felt myself literally break. I snapped at her, like verbally, which is something that I would never do. And, um, and you know, I, I caused upset to her. I walked out of that meeting. I went upstairs and I, I just sat there and I said, I am broken. And at that point, it all just went flooding out i had nothing literally had nothing left to give but until that point i had been pushing through doing everything i was there i was determined i was still doing so i think for lots of people they didn't even see they didn't see it coming they didn't that was me i was a high you know i was a high high vibe high alert manager they didn't see it coming but once i once i broke that's when that whole that idea of that complete overwhelm came that idea that they had absolutely nothing left to give the exhaustion Um I couldn't take in a, a single bit more information um, and I remember when I look back on it you know months months before I had stopped listening to the radio when I was driving to work I'd stopped you know I'd stopped, I'd, I didn't watch any news I you know I was unable to take ex, additional external stuff in I just had to focus on getting to my job you know Switching on when I got out of the car to be that person that I needed to be or I perceived I needed to be at work, getting through that day and then coming home. And, you know, I was a mess at home. I was I was crying. I was you know, I was I was very clear that things were not right, but I I didn't have the word for it. I didn't know it was burnout. I, I really genuinely didn't. And I find that, you know, for somebody who's been in the profession for, you know, almost 20 years, you know, I find that quite, quite strange that I didn't realise what I was going through. It doesn't surprise me that that would be something that we just don't talk about. Well, that's right. And I think that's, for me, that's part of what I, you know, now, I, you know, I'm not a practising social worker, but I'm still a social worker. I'm, I had to release my identity as a, being a social worker for quite a while because I had formed my sense of me around my professional identity. You know, I was Helen the social worker. And after I'd had my breakdown, I had to, I really had to release that, I really had to let go of that and say, okay, who am I now? Who am I if I'm not Helen the social worker? And that was a real process of um you know, self-exploration and learning. But as I've, you know, as I've healed and as I've come through that, I actually am very, I'm, I'm very proud that I'm a social worker. And um, I think that, you know, what I've learned in the training and what we do as a, as a profession is, is so vitally important that whilst I'm not a practising social worker, I used to refer to myself as an ex social worker, and now I come back to the fact that I am a social worker and this is what I'm doing with that background. So. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think that's, you know, again, that's a, a change in how we go.
0: Yeah, so you also mentioned moral distress and vicarious trauma. How, what are they and how are they different to burnout?
1: Okay, so vicarious trauma, I think, is, again, something that – there's a, lot of, there's a lot of emphasis on trauma-informed practice in our profession now and understanding, you know, adverse childhood experiences and the impact that that may have on our clients. And, and starting to understand that as practitioners, we've also probably had our own experiences in, you know, in our childhood. But vicarious trauma is something different. Vicarious trauma is something when we actually have an impact, uh, an impact on ourselves from that repeated exposure to the traumatic material of our clients and, their, and being alongside them as they're, you know, experiencing their traumatic experiences. And um, in many ways, I think it's a very natural and normal response. And I think that's what we need to be, to be clear about because we are absorbing and hearing and, and being part of this, you know, this trauma whilst we're not directly um, experiencing it ourselves. But the difference with vicarious trauma is that it starts to have an impact on the internal sort of like psyche, the worldview, the, what I call the cognitive schema of the social worker. So you, that repeated exposure to traumatic material means that you're, as a professional, your sense of self, your sense of identity, your sense of world norms and worldview starts to shift. And it's very subtle, and it's and it's that sense that over time you gradually that you gradually understand that your sense of of normal, you know, of reality may be vastly different to other people. Again, for me, I I had an experience. I went out with a group of girlfriends, um, and they're they're a mix. There's teachers, there's a a, um, a dietitian, they're, they're childcare, they're professional um, practitioners as well. And we were talking, and one of them just said to me, "She just went, Helen. We don't see the world that you see." And I was sort of like, "Oh," and and they were genuinely, they were just like, "We, you know, no. The way that you frame things, the way that you talk about things, we we don't see the world that way. We don't see that part of the world." And I think that was an early indicator for me that my my sense of of normality had shifted. So I think with vicarious trauma, um, you can you can you get a sense of it in terms of it, it is a shifting in that sense of identity, that sense of self. You know, it might be a questioning of your of your spirituality, whether that's religious or you know, or, or wider spirituality. That sense of of purpose. Um, and again, it can manifest itself in different ways, like, you know, that idea of um, intrusive imagery, intrusive thoughts, um, hyper-arousal, absolutely, you know, hyper-aroused to, to triggers about certain things. And um, again, it may be for some people avoidant behaviours. And, you know, that you know, again, that, those changes in, in your cognition. For me, go
0: on, sorry. I was just going to say, um, how do you notice that in in a person? So you know you're looking at you're constantly engaging with the client's trauma and like you said with your friends like we don't see the the world like others do I mean I remember my my first placement in child protection like we're seeing the pointiest of the pointy ends and you're you're starting to maybe have a bit of a skewed view of the world as all families are like this or you start to see kind of because you don't see the happy the happy family. They don't come to you because they don't need it. It's <laughs> That's fine. The work that we do, yeah. Yeah, so you're kind of exposed to this ongoing trauma and then, um, you know, social workers, frontline workers, you know, think emergency rescue workers, that kind of thing. But how do you have those conversations with someone? Like, how do you have them with colleagues? How do you put up boundaries with clients? Like, how do we, what do we do I with think, that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is where the... Uh, the importance of that clinical supervision plays a role. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, whilst we, you know, we have great supervision standards and all these things in practice for many people in the field, quality clinical supervision is is not the norm. Now, often we'll get line management or task supervision, um, but that idea of somebody being able to to bring you back in to, to shine a light on, your perception to to ask you where you know where that comes from and how that fits with you know with reality um is is really important and again, I think you know it's we have to try and avoid collective group think in teams because there can always be that sort of like that creeping you know as a group we we all we, you know we, we believe that this is what we're going to get and this is, this is the outcome. So we need, to be, we need to have that critical reflection process um, actively running with our colleagues and within our supervision structures so that we're able as individuals um, and in supporting our colleagues to to come back down from those things. And I think that's, we, we, we can't, we're not going to block our exposure to trauma. That's, otherwise we can't do our work. That's very, you know, that's very clear. But what we need to be able to do is to to find ways um, collectively and individually of being able to process that trauma through and coming back in. And I think in some of the fields, it's it's as simple as allowing people some, like a a, a period of time in between visits to decompress, reflect, and, you know, compartmentalize some experiences, just really practice that self-other separation. And be able to come back in and ground yourself, and, and ground yourself as this is me, and this is where I'm at, and what I've just experienced was, you know, over here, and and that was that was the other that wasn't me. But in in the work that we do, and with the challenges of resources and time, you know, many workers just don't get that. You know, you come from one task to the next, one visit to the next, one client. You know, if you're you're backing up clients back to back, and and that that is really important, and you know, we we just don't get that. So how do you
0: how do you balance up the organisational responsibilities of providing that good quality supervision with also just personal responsibilities and ethics around if my workplace isn't providing this in order to be an effective practitioner i need to source this out for myself and i need to invest in either the time or the money or attend a group practice or a group supervision like how do you have those conversations with people where Maybe your organisation doesn't do it this way, but that's no excuse. At some point, ethically, you need to be engaging in that good quality supervision or you need to find those supports yeah. because you can't do the work that you do and it can be quite dangerous as well. Like You can really work with such vulnerable people and we're in Absolutely. such a position of power and authority that they expect us to be there for them.
1: I think that that is something that I've come to Having my, had my own experience, I think I, I, I don't think I was aware of that um, or cognizant of the importance of that, you know, throughout my practicing career. But I think I think it is vitally important, and I think as you know, when we're talking, you're talking to students and new graduates. I actually think that you know they they need to to hold that baton of social work high and. And, and be very clear about what is needed. Um, you know, If you're a doctor going in to do surgery, you're gonna scrub your hands, you're gonna spend five minutes thoroughly scrubbing your hands and your nails and everything else to make sure that you are clean to go in and do that surgery. As a social worker, before you go into that family, you need to be given the time or you need to take the time to you know, have dusted off your previous client and be ready to go in to do your next your next task. And I think that I'm a strong believer that there is a, a, an organizational responsibility. And I think that in time to come, we will see consequences of the lack of that organizational um, follow through on, on the necessary support for our, for our, our workers. But until that happens, um, I think that there is an onus on individuals to seek out the appropriate support um, to get the needs you know the needs met that they, that they want um, I view I view now having had my experience I view self care and you know this self reflection and, and quality supervision I view it akin to your seatbelt when you're driving a car and um, you put that seatbelt on every day when you're driving a car and and you wouldn't drive a car these days without your seatbelt on because one day, if the un- unexpected or the un- unforeseen happens, that's going to stop you from going through the window screen. And I think that we need, to, we need to look at our self-care and our supervision and our reflection practices as our daily seatbelt. We don't know when the unexpected is going to hit us. We don't know when the accumulation of all the stuff that we've experienced in our work is going to suddenly, you know, come to the fore. We need to have you know our daily supports, and um, and that is you know that's a combination of of what we can do ourselves, but also what we might need to outsource to, you know either a collective group or private you know um, clinical supervision if we can. I guess if we can just go back and to to the idea of moral distress, I think you know just just for a little bit because I think this is something that I think when we're as social workers we we spend our time we train ourselves to look at the situation look at every situation you know from different angles consider you know what's happening we're quite different to to other professions you know you know we doctors they have a very clear medical model different practitioners have a very clear focus as social workers we have that holistic you know view of looking at you know both the individual and society and the systems and the structures we look at things from more than that single view and um when we talk about moral resi- moral resiliency that's when we you know as, as we go on through our profession we we get we learn through all of these ethical moral dilemmas that we have about how to how to you know take action and that's that's what makes us stronger and makes us able to balance you know the moralities of our views and our values with that of the world and society and um, for me, moral distress is a very specific aspect where you know what is the right thing to do. You've come to that opinion, that informed opinion. It's not a question of what's right. You've got a belief that you know what's the right thing to do, but you're prevented from taking that action because of you know, the institutional or the, the, the situational um, constraints. So it might be resources, it might be funding, it might be time. Um, and then there is a consequence because of that. And you, you know, for it to be actually moral distressing for the individual, you actually then have to have a a physiological or a psychological um, response to that. So when we're when we're working, um, you know, some of these moral distress situations, they may be, you know, for I think as social workers, I think these are more more significant situations than just everyday occurrences, because as I say, we're used to dealing with moral dilemmas and ethical choices and, and how to balance that. But the moral distress is when, is when you know something should have happened. And it hasn't. You've not been able to enact it. And therefore, the moral residue is is the continual impact of that. Because often it's to do with clients, because as social workers, that's what we, you know, where we're trying to get the good to occur. So often we then see the repeated, the continual impact of not being able to act on a certain decision. And it may be that it's, you know, in the life of a child. It may be it's in a family situation. And, And that starts to have that eating away that ongoing sort of like emotional impact on us. And, you know, in order for us to be able to, to manage these things, then that's where we do need to have both an awareness about what it is that we're experiencing, a knowledge about what, you know, what what theories, what what ideas, what strategies can help, and and tools to actually put it into practice. And I think sometimes we do have, you know, in some cases, we do have the knowledge and the skills, but we might not have the time or the capacity to put it into place. And that comes back to what you're saying is that, you know, we maybe need to start taking onus of that and taking responsibility of that to say, um, this is something I need to put into place before it impacts my work with clients, not when it's impacting my work with clients. Um, so, that we, so that we're, you know, we're proactive in, in, our, in our support for our sort of like, professional future. Yeah,
0: wonderful. And, I mean, a few episodes ago I did a um, an episode of around boundary setting and I think that's a really important one as well because if you don't have that good quality supervision and, and I think large management, you know, it's not that those people aren't often able to do it, but when you're working with someone where you don't feel uh, like there's a pressure to perform and you don't feel that they're also in charge of maybe performance or caseload management, that kind of thing, you can really have these more deep, robust conversations and it's really hard to kind of see if your boundaries are being blurred, if there is a little bit of burnout, if that kind of fatigue is creeping in because you're often a little bit more on show when it's line management Yeah, and you can't dig in as deeper and you, you maybe feel a little bit too vulnerable to actually say because then there's a different power dynamic there as well.
1: And I think that, you know, obviously the, the power, power dynamic in, in line management supervision, but also for a lot of social workers, <laughs> we're working in multidisciplinary teams. So we're working alongside people who aren't social workers. And in many cases, we're being managed by people who aren't social workers. And that doesn't mean that, you know, they are not, in, they are not equipped to manage us, but it does mean that potentially their, their perception and their priorities of what is you know, what are the important things and the issues may be slightly different. And I just think that that, that idea of that clinical supervision is, is really important to help bring things together. I do have to say that in the organisation where I had my breakdown, I actually had probably, you know, the most support in terms of I had clinical supervision than I'd had throughout my career. And I think that's where it becomes its accumulation effect. It is not just... You know what's happening at that moment in time. And um, I, you know, I, I throw back to my time in Northern Ireland. I, I had line manager supervision, but we didn't have clinical supervision. You know, the things that I experienced, the the, like many, you know, early social workers, there's certain things that stay with you. Um, and and I don't think that at the time in the in that you know it, we're in a different era now, but I don't think back then that there was the the. The support and the processing of these things, and the the insight into the um, the impact of on the worker of exposure and and having to make those decisions in 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 these circumstances. So you know, i i often I often described my burnout as, um, and I, I as I was taught, or maybe I wasn't taught, but I I quickly assumed the idea of um, of a protective wall. And what I did with my protective wall, rather than trying to let things in, was, you know, I chucked things over my protective wall. so they didn't, they didn't come in, they didn't affect me, or so I thought. And when I had my, my breakdown, it was almost as if that skip that had been catching all those things that I had over the years had thrown over came flooding out. And, you know, and I think that's, that's because if we don't actually process and work through those experiences, then then they, they linger and there is some effect of it. So, you know, my message is very clear that burnout is not inevitable. You know, it is not something that should or is going to happen to everybody. Um, but if we don't take the action to support ourselves, then it's highly likely. And I found it
0: interesting what you said earlier about it. Sometimes it's not just one big incident, it's an accumulation of lots of little ones. And I'm pretty sure, I think there was a recent OH&S report um, looking at that kind, that same concept of it's not just one big event that's causing uh, workplace um, absenteeism. Often it's those small little things, almost like death by a thousand paper cuts. So it's not absolutely that, that one big client incident, but it's it could be the 10th, the 100th, it could be in your second year, it could be in your 12th year. Like they can happen slowly, slowly over time. And then maybe there's something else that happens that
1: exacerbates it. And like you said, it all just comes flooding out. That's right. And I think that is, you know, I think it's that accumulation, it's that, and it's that not having. process and support supported those things over time that they just build, you know that they 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 sit there latent and something triggers it and and they come to the fore and sometimes you know sometimes that happens and you 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 bounce back and you keep going and then sometimes you know it might be that that is the straw that breaks the camel's back Um, yeah so tell me about the about
0: the because you care program
1: okay so look this is something that i've developed um Specifically, because of what we've been talking about, um, I realised that in my in, after my breakdown, I went through a, a period of uh, an intense period of self recovery, and that was about really like tuning into myself, re reconnecting with my my values and my sense of identity, relearning a lot of my my beliefs and my coping strategies because I'd become dependent on ones which had got me to where they'd got me. Um, and I also then, as I, you know, as I was healing and as I was feeling better, I, I, I wanted to understand why, you know, there was a, there's a part of me that just said, well, you know, what is it, what is it that, you know, what is it that made it you get to this point? So I did some additional training um, myself. I did some training with a Canadian mental health social worker who specializes in um, compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. And, you know, that was a professional training program where we went through an understanding of, of. The information and and the resources for ourselves as individuals, but then also has how could we then impart this information and how could we share this learning out to others to raise awareness and and to get you know more focus on on the importance of the programme as she calls it was caring safely. Um, so I I was really keen to to look at a way of of supporting practising social workers. I was also very keen that it was for the individual. And didn't become something that was just another organizational tick chart. Um, you know, we know that we go to, to training days, and, and yes, they're very useful, but we come back and you know, we get straight back into it, and we often don't take a lot of that stuff back with us. So I wanted to, to create a program where the individual actually had a space and time and, and safety to explore their own um, situation and some of the things around that. To, to get perspective, so to raise awareness, to get more knowledge, and to develop some of the skills to support themselves as they keep doing the work. Um, so, what I've um, because you care is an eight-week program. <laughs> It is broken into four modules that are released fortnightly. And the idea is that I use video training and wider resources, self-reflection processes, and you know, practical and um, skill implementation to support the participants to work through some key areas. So we start with um, module one is about resetting your moral compass. And that is really about delving back into your values, your beliefs, the rewards that you get from the work that you do. Um, and also exploring, you know, the concepts of self-compassion and gratitude. Um, module two is more focused on mindset and the organisational context, so how you process things, what your attitudes are, what you're influenced by in terms of the organisation that you're trying to practice in. Module three is very much about the mind-body connection. It's really about understanding our emotions, um, our response, our trauma response, which is a natural trauma response, and being able to be responsive and attuned to our own individual needs. And then the final module is about bringing it all together and looking at professional sustainability and really being clear about what you as an individual need. And this comes back to, you know, how are you going to move forward with this information? Are you going to make choices about the work environment that you're in? Are you going to make choices to access the support that you're not getting? What are you going to do to create um, a wellness and a career path that is sustainable going forward? Wonderful, and they're all online modules that people can do they're self-paced? They're all online modules, yep, yeah, that they can do through a through a 24-7 training okay. interface. Great, so I'll put
0: a link to that in the show notes. Um, you've also got a professional quality of life self-assessment, so for the listeners out there, they can go to your website, so that's Helen Gray, and gray com um A U to get that uh, self-assessment. So what do they come away with after that self-assessment?
1: So the professional quality of life assessment is um, an existing scale which looks at, uh, I think it's 30 questions that you go through, and it looks at basically your levels of compassion, satisfaction, vicarious um, trauma, and burnout. So it gives you an indication of your risk levels. Now, obviously, it's about raising awareness, and I think that that's the important thing. Just doing, you know, doing the assessment is not going to protect you. But doing the assessment may just you know raise some awareness in you of some areas or some give you, you know, thought about what you need to do. And from there it is then about looking, well, what is it that I need? Where do I get my support? How do I need to take action to to ensure that I'm putting my well-being first? Because, you know, there's a there's a saying we, you know, that which I, I absolutely love, and it and it is that um, you actually give from the overflow of your cup not from what's in your cup, because what's in your cup is yours. The overflow of that is what you give to other people. And I think we, I think, you know, as social workers, we are so good at giving of ourselves to our job and to our, you know, the people that we care about. And, and there's, there's a natural, you know, we've been taught to be compassionate and empathetic and, and that's what we do, but you can't do it at the expense Of your own well-being and i learned that the hard way you know i thought that you know i thought that i was doing the right thing and actually i was you know i was doing harm to myself and to my relationships and to you know in the end i left a team completely unsupported because Mm. i couldn't be there anymore so i did the thing that i you know never wanted to do you know that i'd been fighting not to do is actually the result you know i became a client of the system and and when you look at that you know that's madness Mm -hmm. that that I let myself get to that point. So it's very much about trying to, you know, help people get awareness of of where they're at. And there's more resources, as we say, on my website to then, you know, take things a little bit further.
0: Yeah, thank you. And you also have a recording of a webinar that people can access. Can you tell me a bit about what's in that and where people can um, listen to it or watch it?
1: Yeah. So again, the, there's a download link through my website. Um, it's called At What Cost: um, How to Thrive as a Social Worker Without Putting Your Wellbeing at Risk. And it goes into a little bit more detail about the ideas of vicarious um, trauma, moral distress, and burnout. Um, it looks at some very simple um, strategies, and it's just really again another way for you to take a bit of time to reflect on your situation, and you know learn some of the information behind and maybe put some names and some terms and some, you know, concepts behind what it is you're experiencing. I remember that being quite liberating when I actually did the work with um, Charlene Richardson, the Canadian mental health social worker. And I was like, oh, I fit a model. (laughs) You know, and it, it suddenly made sense. So it's, you know, it's important that we know that we are not, it's not you as the individual that's going through this alone. It actually is a very collective experience. But, you know, we need to take. We need to take that appropriate preventative action. Wonderful, thank you so much. And just
0: to um, just to wrap up, what are some some tools or resources that you can recommend to um, maybe students who are kind of doing their final placements and are finding that you know this is a topic that's of interest to them and sort of graduate early career social workers?
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that for students, I think one of the things that they one of the most important things that they can do for themselves is actually to put self-care in the same bracket as their other practice principles. So, in terms of, you know, that they're, they're going to make, you know, ethically informed decisions and that they're going to you know, carry out their, you know, their practice with, with you know, that, in, that correct intent and use, you know, evidence-based research, they need to be putting their self-care at that level. Um, it is not something... That is an afterthought. Like we say about the seatbelt, it's not an afterthought. There's no point putting your seatbelt on when you've crashed the car. And um, so, you know, I, I just think that, and I also really encourage them to, to not fall into the trap. And this comes for those early, early year social workers as well. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that the people who have been there longer have got it right. Because a lot of us haven't. Um, just because somebody's been there ten years, and just because they might be a little bit cynical about group supervision or, you know, doing another peer review of something, um, it doesn't mean that that's not right. So, you know, we, we, as, as a new breed of social workers, you're you're almost laying laying the foundations for a change. We need to change the rhetoric. We don't actually. Our lot is not to have to work too long with too few resources. The system might be pretty well broken in most places but it doesn't mean that as as social workers you need to break within it as well so i i you know i I send the rally call out to champion them to be you know to be take the caretakers of their own well-being because if we as practitioners don't look after ourselves we can't look after other people
0: that's so beautifully said and thank you so much this has been such an honest conversation and you shared you know the challenges that you face as well as I guess the other side of that, you know, the resources that you had to put in place, the learning and the growth that you had to do and then turn that also into something that can help other people. So I thank you so much for your knowledge and wisdom on this topic.
1: No, thank you so much for the opportunity. As I say, I mean, I think, you know, my new, my new vocation now is is to support other people to do, you know, to do the work. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm loving that. I'm loving every moment of it. So
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. I hope you found this episode interesting and insightful. Uh, Burnout and self-care is a topic that's come up a lot in other podcast episodes and it's been something that's been requested. People have reached out to me on social media and added this as a topic they wanted to hear a bit more about. So head over to the show notes. You'll find a link to Helen Gray's webinar and to the Save Our Social Workers course and a whole bunch of other stuff there. And just a reminder, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.